welcome to another episode of Ask a Jew, where a secular, sinful Israeli, that's me, speaks to her holy, religious friend. I'm Yael, here with Chayalea, and we have a special guest, and it's a boy. And, you know, that always kind of throws us off a little bit when there's a boy here. But Mati Friedman, how are you? I'm fine. It's uh, It's been a while since I've been called a boy. It's uh, <laughs> 45, so thank you. Kyla, are you allowed to speak to men? I, I, I keep forgetting I got what the rules permission. are. I got, got special, special permission, permission for the rabbit. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Mati, if you don't know him, he's a journalist and an author. Um, most recently wrote uh, Who by Fire about Leonard Cohen in the Sinai, which is kind of a, a very little known story about Leonard Cohen's uh, little... Uh, field trip into Israel, right? <laughs> but you've written for, for a lot of uh, different places, written for the Times of Israel, you've written for a lot about what's going on in Israel right now. So uh, we want to talk to you about all of that and possibly things that are a lot less intellectual and important. <laughs> <laughs> this Sounds is a great. big moment for us, Mati, honestly. We started this podcast so we could talk to people like you. Because I'm like, yeah, I can't that's call true. you up and be like, Mati, let's hang out. But if you have a podcast, all of a sudden, you're hanging out with Mati Friedman. <laughs> this is us tricking people into doing like Zooms with us. Exactly. Yeah, we're not even recording, actually. So it doesn't even matter. <laughs> keep your standards low, guys. That'll, that keeps the excitement level. <laughs> um, wait, so Mati, where, where are you? In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Okay, you live... Yeah, because we were talking about that earlier because we had a lot of questions about Jerusalem but I couldn't, I didn't know if you're in Jerusalem, like in like Mavaseret, the like outskirts-ish. No, no, I'm in, I'm in the actual municipality of Jerusalem. Oh, wow. You you pay your taxes to the, the city of David. Uh, yes, I pay my taxes to a lot of people who I'd rather not be paying my taxes to. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like a mystery. I think everyone feels like that here. But you're not from Jerusalem, obviously, right? I was born and raised in Toronto. and. Mm-hmm. So when I was 17 years old, that was in 1995. And I meant to be here for a year. Mm-hmm. That was 28 years ago. And wow. you moved kind of by yourself to go join the IDF or with no, your family? I just moved. Um, I came by myself to work um, for a year on a kibbutz in mm-hmm. Northern Israel. It's very do small. people still do that, by the way? I think much less than they used to. I wonder about that. The first time I heard about that was on The Nanny. Mm-hmm. Remember that show? Real- yeah, of course. And it used to be a real rite of passage, not just um, for American Jews, but also for like, Scandinavians. And it was just a thing that you yeah. could do on a kibbutz. And it was a real thing. And when I came, this was the 90s. So it was kind of, the, in retrospect, the tail end of the kibbutz moment in Israel. So yeah. I, I don't think it's really uh, anything close to what it was. But when I mm. uh, in high school, it was still a thing you could do. And I went to a religious kibbutz, a pretty small religious kibbutz called Ma'ale Gilboa. And I milked cows for a year, and I had just an amazing, amazing year and didn't want to leave, so I didn't. That's so cool. <laughs> Boris Johnson, I think, lived on a kibbutz for a while. You know, the prime minister of... That's, that's right. He, that's right. Really? Yeah, yes. that's right. He passed through a kibbutz. Um, a lot of people did, and particularly people affiliated with, with the left because it was mm. kind of socialism in action. And, um, you know, there are great stories about what was going on in the kibbutzim in the 60s and 70s. And there are a lot of, you know, you meet a lot of kibbutzniks who are the product of, um, you know, Sabra-Norwegian relationships. <laughs> and, uh, nice. It was, it, was quite a, it was quite a scene. 
unfortunately, I missed the scene. So uh, and it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because people don't, we, we speak to a lot of people who don't know Israel that well, um, which is, is an understatement sometimes. But, uh, you know, maybe people don't know the history. And it's it's funny to think that this country was founded you know, to an extent by a lot of these people who are very much like lefty, socialist, mm-hmm. very secular, very much like let's work the land type of people. Sure, yeah. I mean, those were the founders of Israel. They, they yeah. saw the country as part of the world proletarian revolution and they were a workers movement called, you know, the labor party. And, um, and the, they envisioned the country as a kind of socialist republic on the Mediterranean. And Israel's evolved into something else. And of course, the left has fallen on hard times, not just in Israel, but but everywhere that left that was so kind of active and, and influential through the 60s and 70s. It's hard to find it anywhere. And the, yeah. the rise of the kibbutz is part of that. Like that was the, the ethos at the center of the Israeli experience, even though only a very small percentage of Israelis ever lived on kibbutzim. I think it was 2.5% or something like that. So yeah. it was very part of the nation's image. It was never the population, but that was the that was at the center of the national brain and that idea of radical egalitarianism and you know equality between men and women and a hand outstretched to peace with, with the Arab world. And um, so the demise of the kibbutz is, it doesn't affect a lot of, people numerically but i think it does have a big psychic effect on on a country which really doesn't have that compass at its center anymore that's interesting i never realized i never thought about it being such a small part because it was such a big part of our ethos and like even the culture like the you know the the books that we read and the movies and stuff and but yeah i think i I only had a kibbutznik friend when i was like in the army when i was like 18 I was at um, Kfar Aza last week, which is a kibbutz like half a mile away from the Gaza border. Which and really we were needs a rebranding. To, like, I, I feel like that's a bad name. <laughs> well, Maybe they the woman change it who, to like Gaza Heights. <laughs> yeah. The woman who uh, was talking with us uh, grew up there. She was born and raised there and she did not grow up in her parents' home. They had a children's home where all the kibbutz kids slept from the age of three months. Like the parents sent them to the children's house. They were taken care of by, you know, the community. And she did not spend time with her parents alone ever. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, it was quite the experiment. And I could tell that she's not sad that's not like that anymore because she stayed and <laughs> raised her son there. But there were no, there was no children's house anymore. The kids were raised by their parents. So it sounds like they did a course correction uh, for yeah, the things that was, maybe were a little radical. It was a real really radical experiment in it was like experimentation on humans is, is yeah. kind of what it was. And part of the idea of the children's homes was to free the women so that they could, right. you know, realize themselves and work. And um, you have these generations or one or two generations, I guess, of kids who grew up in this kind of Lord of the Flies situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's this world of kids. And for yeah. some, for the wrong kids, that's great. I mean, some kids absolutely loved it. There's no parental supervision and it's just like feral children. <laughs> but for kids who are weaker or a bit out of step, uh, it could be pretty brutal. And um, a lot of the stories came out only years, only years later. But uh, yeah. Yeah, the children's are really a thing of the past. Much like the whole kibbutz movement, unfortunately. So you still have kibbutzim and people still live on kibbutzim, but there are very few of them are actually socialists anymore and they become more like suburbs and um, right. yeah, they're just not, they don't subscribe to that same kind of radical ideology and they're not the pioneering vanguard of, of the country anymore. 
Before we get into deeper Israeli politics, I want to ask you about your writing because you've written some, I mean, your all your books are phenomenal. I've read all of them. And how do you decide what to write about? Because they're kind of like different. I mean, they all have a common thread of like Israel being sort of a character in all your books, but like they're such different topics. What? How do you get interested in something and decide, okay, that's what I want to write about? Thanks for the kind words about my books. They, I guess, are primarily a way, of, a way for me to explain Israel to myself. That's mm. usually how it starts, just some story that I want to figure out as I explore this country where I've lived for most of my life, but it's still a bit foreign to me. So I, I find it very, very interesting. And I, I try to understand certain aspects of it by focusing on these seemingly marginal stories that are kind of esoteric and on the margins. And it's it's never the main story. So I'll never write a book about the Six-Day War or right. the Entebbe Raid or anything like that. It has to be something that people have never considered to be particularly important, but actually it says something big about the country. Someone told me recently that they think that my books are all about the unexpected ways Zionism is playing out in the Middle East, mm. which hadn't occurred to me like that. It was not something that I was doing on purpose, but I in a way it's true and Zionism kind of hits here like a meteor and then has all kinds of unintended consequences that are very Middle Eastern and unrelated Mm. to the roots of Zionism. So I think that's part of what I'm doing. Um, uh, The the last book that I wrote, which is this book about Leonard Cohen's bizarre concert tour (laughs) at the Sinai front of the Yom Kippur War, that one was an attempt to understand that moment in Israel, which is, it comes up a lot in Israel, the Yom Kippur War. Mm. Much more, it's much more important here than you would think from the outside. It's still kind of going on for a lot of people here, even though it's been 50 years this year. And um, mm. I just wanted to figure out exactly what had happened. And I also wanted to write a Canadian-Israeli story, which mm. uh, of which there are few <laughs> worth writing. I think I might have just written the only one, actually. Uh, yeah, I'm but, trying to think what other Canadian-Israeli stories. I mean, has Justin Bieber ever had any issues here? Like, I, I should really, I should really check. You should look into that. Yeah. <laughs> that would be just Justin Bieber, um, Neil Young. Maybe there's a Neil Young yeah. story. Uh, there aren't. There aren't that many. So I also. Um, you know, I I wrote this entire book without really realizing why I identified with the Cohen character. He is this Canadian who gets parachuted into this absolutely kind of catastrophic. Not literally movie. parachuted. I think that's important I, no, to, yeah, not, to not, remind not people. Yeah, not, <laughs> not Sam he does fly. He flies in on a military airplane. <laughs> that's true. They, don't, they don't drop him out of the airplane. It does. <laughs> that would be cool. But it's not too. It's not too distant. And, and there was. It's you know zooming out. That happened to me too in a very different way. I was a Canadian kid who came here and ended up in this very strange, small guerrilla conflict in South Lebanon. So it's not like I'm Leonard Cohen and the conflict in Lebanon in the late 90s was not the Yom Kippur War, but I could identify enough with the situation that it seemed to evoke something that was interesting mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, that's, I guess that's, that's what I'm, I'm doing. I'm mostly indulging my own curiosity and trying to make it, <laughs> trying to make it a profession. No, with, it's um, awesome. With mixed, yeah, well, I think... With mixed success. It's also like little known stories. Like um, I read uh, Spies of No Country, which I really, really loved uh, for multiple reasons. First of all, it was just fascinating, like kind of James Bond-esque story of, of the the people who kind of founded the, the, the precursor of the Mossad and mostly, uh, you know, Jews from Arab countries. And you're reading things and you just can't believe they happened. Uh, and then on top of that is you can't believe you're hearing them from people who are still alive. Yeah. The people that you're talking to, like, this is not ancient history. 
Um, and I, I always recommend that book to people who want to learn about Israel, even though it's like very specific, but I think it just tells a very interesting story of, of Israel's foundation. Um, is there anything in that, in that book that, you know, any like particular story that you remember that you want to share? I mean, I, I remember how I got into that, that book Mm -hmm. and it was before I really, I'd really put my finger on what I now think is the most important thing to know about Israel, which is the Middle Eastern character of the Jewish population here. So Mm -hmm. it's a very European story about Israel, but more than half of the Jews here came from the Middle East and North Africa. And I came in here thinking that was a footnote or maybe not even being aware of it at all. And today I think that's the central fact of the, you know, of the society that I live in. So um, in retrospect... American Jews don't get that. American Jews are still like... <laughs> they think everybody eats bagels here. Here, I say right. here. I'm here. in New York, but in New York, everybody does eat bagels. <laughs> but I think people, you know, American Jews who who come to Israel and assume that it's an extension of the Jewish life that they know because it's a Jewish state, and so you come mm-hmm. to Israel and you're like, let's go get some Jewish food, and there isn't any. There's no <laughs> deli, and bagels only arrived here maybe 10 years ago and Israelis think it's American food. Yeah. They don't even think that it's Jewish food. So uh, the whole society is, it works on a, on a very Middle Eastern frequency. And I think Israel is much easier to understand today for a Muslim from Beirut than it is for a Jew from New York. It's just mm. so true. About being yeah. in the Middle East. And that was my, in retrospect, that's what was interesting to me, uh, interesting to me about the spies story. But I was interviewing this old Mossad agent, this retired Mossad agent named Rafi Siton for another book for my first book, which is called The Aleppo Codex. And it was, wait just a second. Is that your dog? No, I do not have a dog. It's someone oh. else's dog. <laughs> well, you do now. Barking furiously outside the window. Um, oh. Ra- Rafi Siton um, was um, in his 80s and he was a retired Mossad agent. And I was interviewing him for this book that I wrote called The Aleppo Codex, which is a kind of a dirty story about an ancient Bible. And then he, really good book. Uh, he said, you know what? You should really meet a friend of mine whose name is Itzhak Shoshan. Who's he was an even older retired Mossad agent, and I didn't really know why I was going to meet this guy. He lived in Batyam, which is like a very sweaty <laughs> suburb of Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. And but I've just my father a is a proud product of uh, Batyam, but I, yeah. would, I, I would agree with your uh, characterization. <laughs> it's like real Israel. It's like, it, like it's totally yeah. normal. It's like, like the, the Bronx to Manhattan, maybe. <laughs> maybe right, something yeah. like that exactly. Um, coming up a bit, I guess, like the Bronx. So <laughs> I've heard my dad's from the Bronx. Oh. So, so I went to, um, to see talk and I didn't really know why, but I've learned over many years as a journalist that if someone offers to introduce you to an old spy, you should go. <laughs> never, never say no, even if you don't know where you're going. So I went to Batyam and I, I, um, it's this old like Soviet style workers block of apartments. And I got into this little elevator. If you know the old style of Israeli building, maybe your dad grew up in a building like that. Like the elevator is the size of a phone booth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I went up in the elevator to the seventh floor and this little guy opens the door and it's Tag Shoshan. And he at the time was about 90 and he came up to my shoulders uh, and I'm not particularly tall. He was a really little guy in glasses and he had a mustache and I sat down in his kitchen and he made me coffee in this in, in a finjan, which is this mm. tin long handle. It's the way they used to make coffee in the Palmach, which is this pre-state militia that he was part of. And very uh, Lawrence of Arabia. It's a bit <laughs> orientalist. And then <laughs> and um, but I use one to this day. And he um, sat me down next to these really kind of ugly 1960s era green tiles in his kitchen. And he told me 
this story about the birth of the state of Israel that blew my mind. I'd never heard anything like it. And I thought I knew the story of how Israel was founded. Or mo- I knew, you know, vaguely all of the stories, but I'd never heard this one before. And it was a story about this very small group of kids, basically. Some of them street kids from the Arab world who come to join the Zionists in the 40s. And, and they want to fit in. They want to be sabras. They want to be pioneers. And they fail because on the kibbutzim of those years, um, they didn't know what Jews from Arab countries were. Mm. So these guys were too Arab to fit in with the Sabras or with the Jews from Eastern Europe. And they tried and they changed their names. And um, Itzhak Shoshan's original name is Zaki Shashon. He's a, like a janitor's son from Aleppo in Syria. And um, they, they fail. They're trying to fit in and they fail. And then someone realizes that these guys could be very useful as spies because they're too Arab to fit in. Mm. And of course, intelligence requires people who can cross the street into the Arab world and disappear. And mm. so they're selected and trained to some extent, not very much, and dispatched back into the Arab world under assumed identities. And that's really how Israeli intelligence started. Mm-hmm. So I heard the story from Yitzhak on that first meeting, and I went back many, many times and spent many, many hours with him. But when I came out of his apartment after that first meeting, the country looked different. Like I remember mm. standing on the street in Batyam and the streets looked different because I had this European story in my head and it had suddenly shifted to a story where the Jews of the Islamic world were at the center. And I decided that what I would do is write a story about the birth of Israel in which there are no Ashkenazim. Like all of the characters will be Jews from the Arab world, all of the heroes. And that's, that's Spies of No Country, which is a book about spies, but it's, really a book about the soul of the country, which I'm still trying mm. to figure out. And I really think that's the biggest missing piece for me at the time and for most Western observers looking at yeah. the country. That gives it me chills. Of something, the, the yeah. story. <laughs> it reminds me of something you wrote. I'm going to butcher it, but it, the idea, I always think about this when you wrote something in an article once about how David Ben-Gurion was too European to believe Middle Eastern fantasies, but too Middle Eastern to believe European fantasies about Israel. And I think there's something so true about that. And Israel really is at that kind of crossroads of Europe and the Middle East. And that you see it in the population and you see it even in the geography of where it where it is on the map. And it's like, how do you, 75 years later, I feel like we're still trying to figure out the sort of nature of the state of Israel, you know, if it's Middle Eastern, if it's European. Yeah, and, I heard, and we uh, as American Jews are always trying to map our American, you know, reality onto Israel. So not just Jews. I mean, Americans in, yeah. in general, and you see this in the media coverage of Israel, use Israel as a projection of their own preoccupations. And for that to work, Israel has to be a, a version of America or Europe. So the, the fact that most of the Jews here have nothing to do with Europe, right. that's, that's a real disruptor in in a narrative that's basically aimed at providing American consumers with a parable about themselves. So that's why it's really not, people don't really know what to do with that information because people don't really want a story about a foreign country. People aren't really interested in foreign countries. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you want to, you want to see yourself in the story, right? That's kind of like, exactly. Whether it's Ukraine or China or, or Israel, you need a story that's resonant for you. So some weird place that's, you know, 8,000 miles away and works according to a completely weird set of rules that's not interesting to most people, but a country yeah. that is kind of your, you, but looking in a cracked mirror, mm-hmm. that that is resonant for people. So it, Israel, whether it's in the American Jewish imagination or in the imagination of the New York Times or the imagination of Fox News, it's just a projection. It's kind of a fantasy projection that's meant to reflect something back to Americans. And there are a lot of you know, disruptive details that are left out. And, and this is a big one. 
I heard mm-hmm. uh, Yaya Rosenberg say the other day, and I'm probably butchering this too, but he said something like, people shouldn't look at Israel like a failed Norway. They should look at it like a successful Lebanon. Um, which I thought was really, really interesting because, you know, we, we keep in Israel, like we think of ourselves sometimes a little highly and we want to be like everybody else. And we're like startup nation and this and that, but we, we're still like very much the Middle East. Um, it's still hot there (laughs) and there's a lot of people and a lot of conflict and, you know, things that work in other countries. This is why I get a lot of times frustrated with my American friends, um, because some of their criticism in Israel about Israel are things that we have tried, uh, but perhaps like it just don't work that way in this in this part of the world. You know, you you don't just invite your neighbor who threw rocks at you over for lunch. Maybe you do that once, but if it doesn't work, then you have to do other things. <laughs> you know, right? I, I was actually just in Oslo. I got back two days ago. Oh, cool. And- oh, for the the what do you call it? The thing that everybody on my Instagram was going to where, where were they and why wasn't uh, the the was it like some kind of freedom freedom uh festival democracy man if that was going on no one invited me but um, wow okay I'm, I'm gonna look this up um but i i was i mean it's an amazing place and it's just yeah. you know it's scandinavia and um it's so orderly and walkable and everyone everybody's is, tall everybody's very attractive <laughs> and then and you guys like the, the, the main political framework of the 90s, which is when I ar- arrived here, is something called the Oslo Peace mm-hmm. Process, which is still used in Israel. <laughs> Question <Oslo>. mark? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and you, you look at Oslo and what, what does Oslo have to do with, with Israel? And it's, it comes from, I think, an aspirational place where we want to be that. And I think in the mind, in the fantasies of the founders of Israel, that's where we were going. They were, you know, there was the Eastern Europeans. They didn't come from Oslo, but they had this mm-hmm. kind of European script about moving toward, you know, brotherhood and peace and prosperity. And, you know, eventually we were going to get to Oslo. And that's why that name, the Oslo Accords, that had re- resonance for Israelis who saw the script in that way. But, um, but that's not where we are. And actually, the you know the the peace accords founder, uh, because we're in the Middle East, and the assumptions of Oslo don't make much sense if your neighbors are Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and <laughs> Egypt, and uh, and we, we kind of learned that the hard way. And there's still this this insistence um, on on seeing Israel as if it exists somewhere between New Jersey and Greece, and exists <laughs> in a vacuum. So you know, there's no. It's just kind of a country floating in the ether, making terrible moral errors. And people just don't understand the geographic context in which we have to make our decisions. For example, I think even an educated American news consumer does not understand that the West Bank and Syria are a 90-minute drive from each other. Because mm-hmm. in the American imagination, those are two completely separate news stories. There's the yeah. peace process, there's the Oslo peace process story in the West Bank, and then there's the Assad barrel bomb story in Syria. But for us, it's the same place. So when we look at the West Bank, we see Syria, and that informs yeah. our decisions. And it's an important part of the fantasy projection um, to eliminate all of the geographic context and insist that Israel is somewhere like Norway or um, San Francisco and yeah. to resist um, what is obvious to anyone who lives here, which is that we're smack in the middle of the Middle East and even our Jewish population is, um, yeah. you know, um, mostly from the Islamic world, meaning that the meeting with Islam doesn't happen in 1948. It happens many, many centuries before. So it's a much more complicated and much more Middle Eastern story than people want to believe. Yeah. 
You you really shot to fame, I think, when with your AP story um, when you when you wrote the piece about how because you, you were an AP reporter, correct? And you kind of. The fact that five of your friends read my story doesn't mean fame, but... No, you were... Oh, my God. Are you kidding? It was... No, that was huge. That's business was model your for this story? podcast, and it works, so... <laughs> no, Mati, seriously, that was a huge story. I mean, that was everywhere. How long ago was that? It's, it's hard to believe it, but it was nine years ago. It was in the summer... Really? Of, it was in the summer of 2014, at the very end of the Gaza war that summer. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a big story, and I think it was like... What I got out of that story was like, thank God someone is saying this and kind of blowing the lid on this thing that American Jews have been feeling for so long that no one has said. And you were the first journalist to come out and be like, pay attention to what is happening here. And I just, that was such, I think that really was a game changer for like the conversation here in America. I don't know about what happened in Israel with that story, but here in America, I think that was a big game changer for the pro-Israel community and for the media in general to take a look at themselves and say like, what is happening? And I just, I really, really appreciated that article. But what, I want to hear from your perspective, like what happened? Did you get a lot of blowback on that? Did you, were your friends at the AP mad at you? Like what happened? <laughs> and what what years were you at the AP? I was at the AP from 2006 to the very end of 2011, and um, tried to write something about it immediately after I left, and couldn't quite uh, put it in the right words. And then that the, there was this very serious round of violence in Gaza that summer of 2014, mm-hmm. and it kind of clicked. And I decided I was going to write it, and I I didn't really expect anyone to read it. I mean, the first <laughs> it's actually two articles: one that came out in tablet, and then a a continuation in the Atlantic. And I, I mean, I knew my dad would read it and you know, a few people who read tablet, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's not, the readership isn't fast. And then it, I mean, it was insane for yeah. a couple of months. It was just um, nothing but that. And I think the, the two stories have been shared on Facebook more than 130,000 times or something like wow. that. It was just, it was very intense. So there was a lot of, you know, um, good feedback like the one the, the feedback that reached Hayala. And, and I think most of the feedback that reached me was was pretty good and people were happy to read it and and obviously it's true so that um, that made it resonant not everyone was thrilled you know, my former sure. colleagues and employers at the AP didn't like it even though they couldn't disprove any of it because of course yeah it's well, can you give the, our listeners a TLDR about like the coverage of of Israel on the ground yeah, I mean, what I saw as a reporter for the AP, which is the world's biggest news organization, at least according to the AP, it's the big U.S. news agency. So um, what I saw was basically, um, I mean, it was a story that was blown out of all proportion and existed mainly as a kind of parable for Western readers about things that preoccupied them, which in, in retrospect, we, looking at this from 2023, kind of makes a lot more sense. In the middle of it, it didn't make that much sense. But now we understand that mm-hmm. the press is moving much more toward an activist model and that reporters were starting to see themselves as kind of fighters for justice mm-hmm. and not as people explaining complicated situations. And we also understand that inequality is seen as the primary evil of the time. And so we need stories that... Yeah. And what's going on in Gaza is exactly what's going on in Ferguson. 
Yeah. Yeah, we see these lines that go from Ferguson to Palestine. And that all starts at the time. And now we understand what's going on because that mindset has really taken over, not just big parts of what Mm -hmm. used to be the mainstream press, but also big parts of the academy and the NGO world. But at the time, it was all kind of new and I couldn't quite make sense of the broader picture. All I knew what was happening in the bureau of the AP. We had, when I was there, we had about 40 staffers covering the Israel story, which is about 9 million people in Israel, plus about <laughs> 4 or 5 million in the Palestinian territories. We're talking about a story of maybe 14 million people or 15 million people. And the number of staffers we had covering it was greater at that time than we had covering China. Uh, it was Our more motto for Chayala and I um, is we want the motto for the Jewish people to be, leave us out of this. <laughs> yeah, of everything. Uh, because so many times we just find ourselves like, why? Why are you, you know, why are you so obsessed with us to quote Regina George from Mean Girls? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, that is a very insightful question from Regina. And I, <laughs> I, I, I do think that some Jews kind of like being at the center. So sometimes I, mm-hmm. you know, I'll say that I'll give those numbers. Like we have more people covering Israel than we had in all of the countries of sub-Saharan Africa combined. That's 50-something countries. So mm-hmm. it seems to be insane if you understand the news as a rational attempt to understand events on planet Earth, which is how I would understand it. Um, but sometimes I say that to Jewish audiences and they just stare at me and they're like, yeah. Israel is more <laughs> we are the most important people. Our like, parents told us. Israel is more important than India, which has 1.3 billion people. So, <laughs> yeah. But that's how you get also like a, 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 how you get two graduation speeches from 19-year-olds who don't know where Israel is on the map, graduating from law school and spending half of their graduation speech talking about like the Zionist entity. Right, um, I think a lot of it is a product of that obsession. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's kind of a chicken and egg question where you don't know if the press obsession comes from that deeper obsession or whether it drives it. And it's probably a bit of both. But it was pretty clear to me by the end that Israel was being used as a, as a symbol of what is wrong in the West, according to liberals, so, of which um, of whom I am one, by the way. Um, so, you know, what we see as being wrong is inequality and colonialism and nationalism and racism and militarism and things like that. And so there has to be a story that allows you to focus that kind of discontent. And Israel's a good candidate because it seems, if you squint and you know, <laughs> falsify things on the margins, it seems like a version of America or it seems like a version of the West. So you can use it as... A cra- again, as a cracked mirror, as a dark right. mirror, where you set up this kind of parable about your own problems, except the bad guys are are Jews. And then you have this incredibly powerful, but mostly fictional story about Jews who represent white power and militarism and Western prosperity, mm-hmm. and Palestinians who represent kind of third world innocence. Indigenous, and, yeah. Yeah, or everything that is good in yeah. the simplified world of the left and again which is where i would place myself politically and 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 the israelis represent everything that's bad and that makes a very powerful story now it's not true it won't help you understand the actual events in the country but it is a very powerful story because it's not a news story it's a morality mm-hmm. story about the west and that's why it's so deep and that's why you have these commencement speeches and those are great examples from the past week but it's obviously something much much broader i mean the only active boycott i guess until recently with russia for many years on the left has been a boycott of of israel and it's a it's an issue that really animates people in a way that no other issue does and and it um it's a way of understanding evil and if you look at the history of jews in western societies that's traditionally one of the roles that jews play they're a way to put a face on evil and the, mm. the quality that is evil 
changes. So you know, over time, people aren't preoccupied with the same evil. So you know, if greed is evil, then Jews are greedy. And if communism is evil, then the Jews are Bolsheviks. But if capitalism is evil, then the Jews are bankers. And if you know, nationalism is evil, then the Jews are tribalists. And if cosmopolitanism, if cosmopolitanism is evil, then the Jews are you know, cosmopolitans. And if racial purity is good, then the yeah. Jews are racially impure. It's whatever you need at a given time. And at the moment, there are other preoccupations. There's and a type of anti-Semitism for everyone. I mean, you can see that they're going on at the same time in America. So on the on the hard right, the, you know, people are are they don't like globalization, for example. Mm-hmm. They don't like the movement of capital over national boundaries and the erasure of national differences. And the word globalist on the alt right is a euphemism for Jews. So there's a way of using Jews to explain the, the evils that preoccupy people on the hard right. Immigration, for example, you know, there's yeah. that basement theory where the the Jews are orchestrating non-white immigration in order to erase the white majority in America. And that ideology actually drives a few of the mass shooters of, of recent years, including the one in Pittsburgh who's, who's on trial now. So there, there are a few of these things running at the same time. And, and giving a lot of credit to the Jews for like having their shit together <laughs> yeah, and agreeing with one another on what needs to be done. I mean, anyone who's looked at Israel's parliament over the past couple of months, <laughs> just the idea that we're orchestrating anything is obviously anything, yeah. <laughs> anything like a vote on income tax. So yeah. um, the idea that we're running a conspiracy is a is a stretch, but but it's a very effective way of understanding the world. And and we can see at the commencement speeches, not only is it effective, but it's also acceptable. It's socially acceptable to do that mm-hmm. in a university context. Um, you know, just portraying zionists as a kind of embodiment of evil and the fact that that's coming out of the mouths of college graduates is one thing but the fact that they understand in some deep part of them that this is acceptable to the audience and to the faculty because yeah, right they're getting um, like snaps and that's that's, you know. that's why we need to be that's why we need to be worried because we've yeah. seen these obsessions pop up in the past and it's always a bad sign there- and the educated classes who are supposed to be kind of wise to this stuff because it's happened again it's happened over many centuries and if you if you know anything about Western history, then you know this, and yet they don't know it clearly, and they're either tacitly allowing it, if not actively educating for it. Yeah, it's very easy. Think- we say this. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. We this we do this a lot, by the way. It's like in Israel. It's only the strong survives. Please, my friend. Thank you. No, um, I was just thinking while you were speaking that um, part of the story of Israel today is this sort of disentanglement of the American Jewish community from Israel, right? And this is kind of like a fear that we have. And there's this like existential crisis of like, what is going to be and how are the American Jewish communities going to feel towards Israel? But I think that, and I want to know what you think about this idea, that I think for American Jews, the story of Israel is really a story about media more than anything else. And for Israelis, it's really a story of survival and security and all of that. But American Jews are busy worrying about what the New York Times is writing on its op-ed page about Israel. And so these two things are so yeah, far apart from each other. their concert, yeah. Right. And what, you know, what college students are saying at graduation, like maybe the American Jewish community has to be like, fuck it, we don't care what the media is saying. We know what the truth is. We understand what's going on in the Middle East and who cares. But I say that and I believe it, but then I also get really upset when I see the way the media covers the story of Israel. So I don't know. What do you think about that reality of like a media story versus like actually worrying about safety and security and and the sort of real ground, what's going on on the ground there? And side note, it's mark my words, June 15th, Bruno Mars is going to cancel. 
Bruno Mars <laughs> announced like shows in September sold out already in Israel. I, I, I don't think he's going to make it. Okay, it'd be an interesting bet to make. Let's hope that Bruno can <laughs> I mean, I very much hope I'm wrong. But yeah, but like, you know, as a, as a mashal, I don't know how you say mashal, like allegory to what's yeah. going on, you know, it's just that somebody like a famous person can't get away almost with going to um, perform in Israel because right. of the public and pressure. Sure. I mean, the climate is, is, is pretty brutal uh, in the world of culture and in the academy. And I really feel for... Jewish kids who are, you know, who have to deal with this stuff and to expect, you know, some 19-year-old kid from New York or, you know, Cleveland or something to be able to come up with a detailed explanation for Israeli policies. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> they, they shouldn't be put in that, in that position. And um, I don't get the impression that, you know, Chinese students on American campuses are really, you know, forced to the wall and asked to explain the uh, policies of the Chinese Communist Party, as of course they shouldn't be. So I, I do feel for... For, for those kids and, and I meet them sometimes and I meet their parents who are, who are very concerned and, uh, and I understand the concern. I just, I don't, I don't think we should let this run away with our whole brain. And mm-hmm. one reason that I wanted to write that article was in a weird way was not to focus attention on it and then ha- just talk about it forever, but it was actually so that we can file it away mm-hmm. and move on. Like the, the, the system that I was part of when I was in the international press is it's deeply flawed. It's producing stories that are largely fictional. So that's upsetting, but um, you don't waste too much time on it. And I get the impression that there are a lot of forces in the Jewish community that not just want to talk about it all the time, but they want to put a ton of money in fighting it. And that would yeah. be a huge mistake because there's a real world where we can actually win. I don't think we can win this battle, but yeah. we actually build a great country in Israel and we could do a lot better than we're doing. And if I had a million dollars, I would, I wouldn't use it to fight the media war or something like that I would build a school for kids in Umel Faham or in Lod mm. or in Jerusalem and, or, you know, pave a road uh, in the Negev or something and that and do something mm. that would be actually concrete because Zionism has showed that that's where we can actually win. Like we can build a country we can take a refugee camp in a war zone, which is what Israel is, and turn it into one of the most successful countries in the world. That's happening in the real world. That's not a narrative battle. And I really think that that's one of the great things that Herzl understood in, in his, in his like, in his guts. He's in Vienna, and it's you know the late eighteen hundreds, and he he's almost assimilated Herzl. The guy has a Christmas tree in his house, and his his kids aren't circumcised, and he's gone. I mean, he's he's on his way out of out of Judaism, and he just hears these stories about Jews. Again, Jews as the face of of evil, whatever evils were current in Vienna at the end of the nineteenth century, and and um, unlike all of his friends, and unlike his wife, he he doesn't just assume that it will go away, and he right. understands that it's actually not going away, and he doesn't waste his time running around Vienna trying to change the narrative. You know what I mean? Like he's not calling right. up newspaper better <laughs> coverage, and he's not starting a foundation to uh, you know uh, emphasize Jewish accomplishments <laughs> or. Or whatever he's like listen we need a completely different plan and he sits down and he writes this totally crazy plan which is we're actually going to get out of here and we're going to make some other place great and it works and it doesn't work exactly as he planned or for the reasons mm-hmm. that he planned, but it actually works and i think that's where we have to focus our energies so i actually made a conscious decision after those stories came out not to write about it that much like I could have done nothing in the past 10 years, but write about it. There's that much interest in that yeah, story. And of course. I made a very conscious decision not to do it. Like that's not going to be what I read about. I read about Israel. It's a very interesting, deeply flawed place, of course, but a fascinating place. And if you're just spending all of your mental energy complaining, 
um, even if the complaint is justified, it's just, it's not going to lead you anywhere good. People well, now I feel really bad asking you more know. questions about it because you said you don't want to. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very happy to. I'm very happy to talk about it. Um, no, you, I'm happy you brought up Herzl. I'm happy you brought up Herzl because I. I mean, look, I grew up in a very orthodox home where Zionism. We have a very complicated relationship with Zionism and the word and the theories and you know all of that. But I get very emotional when I go to Har Herzl. And I stand at his grave. You know, they took his body away. He died before the state was established, but I'm only saying, I know you know, but I'm saying this for our listeners. <laughs> and so they brought Herzl's body back to Israel and buried him on this mountain called Har- named after him. And it's the military cemetery in the middle of Jerusalem. And most of the prime ministers are buried there, Golda Meir and Yitzhak Rabin and several others. Um, but Herzl has a special place on that mountain and he has this like slab of granite where his body is. And I, it looks over the city of Jerusalem. And I, I always get very emotional when I'm standing there because I think about, you know, personally, he does not have a very successful Jewish story. Like his family, I don't think he had any Jewish grandchildren. I don't think he had any, what we would say in our community, I know nachas, right? Um, but <laughs> But look at this freaking country, right? That is so much because of what Herzl did. And so I um, I just, it's the story of Israel is so complex and there's so many layers. And Herzl never would have dreamed of the religious aspect of Israel. He would, couldn't even believe that there would be religious people living there, which is another whole story that we could probably spend two hours discussing the religious and non-religious uh, divide in Israel. But um, yeah, I just, I don't know, maybe write a book about Herzl. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's tempting because he's such a fascinating character. Unfortunately, I, I think that the perfect book about Herzl has already been written and it's <laughs> called, it's called Herzl. It's by Amos Elon. Yeah. Amos yeah. Elon is a great Israeli journalist and yeah. he wrote a book, um, that came out sometime in the seventies and it's an, it's an amazing biography of Herzl and mm-hmm. it'll just make you love this really strange character. Yeah. You know, he rides his bike around Vienna, he's into bicycling, and he's a playwright. And and he has this story. Basically, the country emerges from a story, and he understands that you need a very powerful story. And that stories are really important, which is something that Jews understand, because the, the whole, the, the, the Jewish people are held together over many centuries by a story. There's no country, there's no government, it's just a story. So the Jews understand that stories are very powerful things, and he sits down and he writes a new story, he, sits down in Paris at his desk mm-hmm. and he writes a story called the Jewish state. And I live in the Jewish state. So <laughs> <Right>. it's an <laughs> amazing demonstration of what you can do with your, with your pen. And again, it doesn't exactly look like he thought, and he didn't know that much about Judaism. And right. he, you know, there, there's, there are hilarious quotes from the Russian Zionist. He's a Western European. He's a very mm-hmm. cultured guy. And, and uh, I can't remember which of the Russian Zionists it was. It was Sishkin or one of the guys who kind of understand that Herzl's an amazing leader and they have to get behind him. They say, um, this guy doesn't know any Jews and we have to make sure he doesn't meet any. <laughs> <laughs> it's something like that. That's amazing. <laughs> if he actually meets the real Jews, he's going to understand that his plan is totally crazy. So he can't <laughs> can't actually meet Jews. That was one of the reasons that, um, you know, that he was so so confident that it was going to work. I know. I mean, we grew, I literally grew up, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to throw my, my community under the bus, but like, I literally grew up thinking that Herzl was like a bad guy. Like I didn't, I had no context for who he was growing up. It was like, we don't talk about him, you know? And then as I 
figured things out on my own, um, I was like, holy shit. I mean, he's, this is like an incredible, incredible Jewish story. I mean, this is through, for the rest of Jewish history, he's going to be a major player. He's Herzl's Moses. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. That should be the name of our our podcast. Our modern Moses. (laughs) That will start, you know, I don't want to start problems here with our some of our no, listeners. but you're so right. He didn't make it into Israel. It's so true. It's oh, very yeah. similar to the story of Moses. Wow. Sorry, they're renovating no, I- next door to my apartment, which is like a very <laughs> New York story. Um, That's hilarious. And I decided not to go into our studio today because we're having some internet problems there. And uh, and here I am under attack. That's good. So you just be quiet. I'll do the rest of this myself. <laughs> Okay, ask ask Mati about uh, coverage, uh, um, media coverage from Gaza. Oh, yeah, Gaza. Because when we met in November with some journalists, um, you said something really interesting. I that I never thought I of. I can't imagine what it was. <laughs> so um, well, you, you were talking about, and, and I can't believe it didn't even occur to me as somebody who knows Israel, knows media, served in Dovertal, like in the media liaison unit. And I didn't think about the fact that every single piece of information that comes out of Gaza into the media is controlled by Hamas, right? Any news organization operating under a repressive regime is going to have to cut some kind of deal with the regime in order to operate. And that's not just Gaza. It's true in North Korea and it's true in Iran and it's true in many, many places. And the Western press has largely decided that it doesn't need to tell readers what the deal is, which is a big mistake, in my opinion. <laughs> but um, um, they've preferred to provide kind of partial coverage rather than no coverage. Mm-hmm. And you know, so that's why in Gaza, for example, you'll 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 often see footage of the rubble that results from an Israeli airstrike. Or, or worse, the human casualties that result from an Israeli airstrike, but you're much less likely to see video of a launch from a civilian area in Gaza. And there's a reason for that. And the journalists know the rules. And I wrote a bit about that in those two essays in, in 2014, about what the rules are. And Hamas understands how the press works. And they understand it better than the press, I think. And and the the, the journalists play play along to some extent. It's not like there's, um, you know, a Hamas uh, a soldier with a gun to the head of the, of the New York Times correspondent. But um, in, in most cases, they... Hamas doesn't need to have a soldier with a gun to the head of the correspondent because the correspondents get more or less what they're allowed and not allowed to do. And in any case, the story that they've come to tell here is a story of Israeli power and Palestinian weakness. So the stuff that Hamas doesn't want to show is mostly stuff that the reporters don't want to report anyway, like the fact that Hamas has built this really extensive military landscape underneath the civilian landscape of Gaza. And that, you know, there are Hamas fighters operating out of civilian areas and launching from civilian backyards. And and all that stuff just complicates the story, just like, you know, we're talking about the nature of Israeli society. That's another complicating factor. And Palestinian agency or Iranian involvement, Mm. these are complicating factors in a simple story. So it just gets in the way. So so that's the way it it works. But um, it was a great story by another former AP guy who actually just died, a guy named Nate Thayer, who operated out of Southeast Asia for a long time. And he wrote a story around the same time that my AP essay came out. Shortly afterward, he writes a story about about North Korea, where he discovered that there is an AP bureau, or was at the time, I haven't followed it in the, in the past couple of years, but um, they had a bureau in Pyongyang. And he discovered that the AP bureau in Pyongyang 
physically is in a building called the Ministry of Propaganda and Agitation, <laughs> and that the AP reporters in North Korea are clearly agents of North Korean intelligence. Of course, there's no free pet, free press in North Korea. Uh, you have to get in bed with the regime. So they cut some deal with the regime. Mainly, he thought in order to show that amazing footage from the rallies in North Korea, where you have these like choreographed rallies with thousands of people holding up signs of the leader and stuff like that. There's an audience for that in the West. So if you want that stuff, you have to kind of cut a deal and then you pretend to have a bureau in Pyongyang when you don't. And there are similar stories going way back to the forties about how Western news organizations operated in Nazi Germany. Lots of organizations just cut a deal with the Nazis and continued operating, including the AP. Um, Like when the Nazis told the AP bureau that they had to, fire all the Jews than they did. Uh, so, I mean, th- this, is, um, this is a much older story that you can get, de- you know, there's a defense of it where you say, okay, it's either that or have no coverage. So it's not a completely simple story, but, um, but uh, yeah. it, it cripples coverage in ways that readers are often not, not aware of. And right. the Gaza story is a really good example of it because you have a massive press presence again, more press than you have, you know, in most of Africa, for example, and they're reporting the story that's 50% true, but a story that's 50% true is false. For example, if, you know, if let's say Mike walks into Joe's house, Joe pulls a knife um, and Mike kills Joe. So I, that, we have that story. And I tell you the following story. Uh, Mike walked into Joe's house and killed Joe. And I leave out the other part. Is that story true? Right. right. I mean, it's the details are true, but you're missing the, information that you need to understand what happened. Yeah. And so we what see would a lot you of headlines say? like that, like two Israelis, one Palestinian killed in day of clashes, but the one Palestinian was like, you know, <laughs> a, a terrorist who, who attacked somebody. But Mati, what do we do about media literacy today? I mean, how do you think about reading news? How do you read the news? Like who do you, yeah, we want to you ask get you, your you where you get your information, where you get your, your media. Mostly it's ask a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> so you know all about who the hottest dictators are in the world that's something uh, we talk about a lot yeah yeah i missed that episode and i should um, catch up on it <laughs> we're we're fans of young stalin but okay young stalin and post uh you know trial saddam hussein oh yeah uh, cleaned up really uh, nice uh, mostly i try to read books because I found that if you have um, that's, you know, time that's to, a good idea <laughs> time to invest in consuming information it, it's that's time better spent I, I'm not always I guess successful in um, meeting my own standard but um, most of what I mean most of or much of what you see pre- presented as news is actually activism much of what you mm. see in social media is designed to drive clicks by sparking outrage which is the most reliable you know uh, predictor of clicks so a lot of that information is just designed to make you angry as a way of getting you engaged and depending on what media ecosystem you're in the villains will be different but um but it's not really about explaining complicated situations to you it's about um eliciting very basic emotions and telling you stories that are as simple as possible and that's just not Mm -hmm. not useful i mean it's useful to know what the information ecosystem looks like, but it's not useful as an explanation of the world. And I just know that because I was, you know, in the factory where the sausage was made and I saw, and this is years ago, this is before, you know, the, the current age of social media, but, um, but I, I, I knew enough about it by the time I left not to trust most of what I'm seeing. And that's not a comfortable position for me to be in. I'm not a critic of the media or something. And I certainly don't 
I mean, I guess I am a critic of the media, but it's not, <laughs> that's not like my default position. Right. And I, I certainly am not on board with, you know, like Trumpian attacks, like of the media as the enemy of the people. And I think that those are mostly cynical defenses by um, corrupt people who are trying to protect yeah. themselves from scrutiny. So uh, um, I just, I, I would like to believe the New York Times. Like I would like to open that newspaper. Yeah. And just, you know, I see that's, that's it. Instinctively I'm jealous. Bad. I'm jealous. Like we were, Kyla and I were just talking about this earlier. I want to be like everybody else. I too want to open the New York Times and listen to NPR and watch CNN and be like, this is the information. Yes. But, yes, I'm you know, I'm I can't big. because I know, you know, yes, too much. I know too much. You know too much. Yeah, but I, but I feel like I'm jealous of these people. They have like their lives are much, I don't know. They're, it, it sounds a little condescending when I say it like that, but you know, I, I don't know what it's like to be part of like the, uh, the like elite narrative I mean, it yes, it's, like fun. it's true that yeah, it's true that if you kind of buy in and believe it, then you have a coherent worldview and you have a kind of a membership and an information ecosystem that yeah, is. And you know who's bad and who's good, which right, is really, thing, really useful. But the thing is, the, <laughs> right? world, the world will make less and less sense to you the deeper you are in that ecosystem. And you'll become more and more frustrated with actual yeah. events, which do not correspond to the information that you're getting. So it's in my opinion, even though you can feel like an orphan sometimes, it's better yeah. to be um, just aware that all the information is problematic, including the information, of course, coming from from the right. And yeah. that we're all going to have to, we're all living in a disinf- disinformation blizzard and we're all going to have to navigate it in some way. And even though that is a very scary proposition and I don't really know how democracies are supposed to function in these circumstances, <laughs> just being aware of it p- positions you better to... Um, be able to make sense of something it's where so I true. think that a lot of people in the information silos, whether it's right or left, can no longer understand what's going on and can certainly no longer understand the views of the other side, which is presented to them as being irredeemably evil. And mm-hmm. um, and then like, how are you supposed to understand America if yeah. you think the country is irredeemably evil? You I just remember Trump. that moment. No, like I remember that well, moment. Let, let me, you really... have to let me speak when there's no um, like <laughs> drilling next door. <laughs> this is urgent. <laughs> <laughs> what? Don't worry, what, yeah, start again. So I want to talk about Trump, your favorite person. Oh God, <laughs> I hate Trump. Why do no, we but, talk about him? But I think no, because I think what what Mati said is like uh, Trump was an answer to a lot of people to this bullshit that we see. Except instead of him saying like, "Hey, we all see this bullshit from the media. We all know that there's all this. You know, we're, we're being kind of force fed a lot of stuff." And the answer to that should be, hey, the world is complicated. But instead, he took it to the other side. He's like, and and now I'll tell you what's actually true. And I'm not force feeding. So, so you know, people like that pendulum swing, people respond to real problems by kind of going into the arms of somebody who offers them the exact same problem, but from the other side. Sure. So, like, you know, exactly. it's just yeah. it's just bad is what I want to yeah, say. Yeah, it's just bad. But pe- you're absolutely right. And people... Are- seem to want simple stories and will flock to whoever is willing to to deliver that story and um it's true in israel too i mean i've met people who grew up with a very simple good story about israel you know kind of summer camp israel and Hmm. it's this just society of pioneers around the we heard that in summer camps you get uh brainwashed to um drink palestinian blood is that true i never that's what i I heard about jewish summer camps in america from uh you know jewish publications a lot of those people then um, you know, encounter reality and then flip. But instead of saying, okay, the world is complicated and things are much more complicated, they 
tend to adopt a, an equally simple and equally fictional narrative that just flips the villain. Uh, and yeah. they, and they, so people. That's why we like our heterodox, uh, our heterodox people, and and I'm especially proud of myself when I when I listen to somebody who says something that I disagree with, but I still like and respect them because that's really, that's like really hard to do, right? Like sometimes, especially when it comes to Israel, like I know Chayla and I are very sensitive to it. Like if somebody says something bad about Israel, I'll be like, ah, you're, you know, I can't listen to this person anymore. Right, things have become very binary and there's this real temptation to kind of rule out anyone who doesn't fall into the, you know, particular ideological groove that you're in. And it's very dangerous for societies yeah. that have to somehow democratically make it work. Obviously not just America, but Israel too, where Israelis are finding it yeah. just harder and harder to talk to each other and function in a democracy. And it's very worrisome. Israel it's is part of where I struggle. No, but it's part of where I struggle. Like I love, I'm part, I'm doing the thing at Hartman I was telling you before, and I know you're, you're at Hartman and I love going, I love it. I love the conversations. I love the discussions that we have, but what part of what, where I struggle is like, I'm so aware of the battleground here in America for Israel. And like, what I don't want to like, it's like almost like, let's not discuss it. We don't need to discuss these problems. Let's not, let's not give them any, you know, fodder for like anything for them to say about Israel. And I just, I really have to fight that inside of myself because I want to be in a place where it could be like, okay, let's have this complicated conversation about democracy in Israel or like, you know, fair elections or what BB is or, you know, all of these things without the fear that the LA Times is going to overhear my conversation. The next thing it's going to be on the front page and, oh, look, Hylea says that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, I don't know. I find that real. And I know that's stupid for Israelis because who cares? But as an American Jew, it's hard. And it's like, I want to engage in the complicated conversations, but I also don't want anyone to overhear it. Like I want it to only be in like Jewish spaces with no one else listening. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like we can't afford sometimes. And, and this yeah. is, uh, you know, and, and, and I want to talk about, and I know we don't have you for much longer, but related to that, you know, you wrote a piece with, with Yossi Klein-Alevi and, and Daniel Goldis, who, again, I, I don't do sports metaphors, but what would you call like your three top players? <laughs> of uh, you know a dream like, team my dream Israel I probably wouldn't call <laughs> them Friedman Halevi and Gordis that's <laughs> <laughs> like a, a law firm um, but, um, but you know you wrote a piece about the whole judicial overhaul in Israel which I love that we haven't spoken about and I'm al- almost want to be like let's not talk about it I know why are you uh, bringing we, it up we had a really good conversation with Lava Kov about it but whatever um, but you know, kind of calling to American Jews to um, get involved uh, in it. And, and it, it's something that I, I have to say that I'm, I'm a little conflicted about because on one hand, I am very supportive of, of the message and I'm very supportive of the protests in Israel. On the other hand, I sometimes I feel like we can't afford it. Like we're dealing with from the river to the sea here. You yeah. know, we still need to convince people that it's okay for us to have Iron Dome because it protects us. Uh, so yeah, just curious, kind of your your thought process there. Yeah, I think like I think that um, you know, many of us are being forced into this uncomfortable situation where we have to, on the one hand, defend Israel from this kind of libelous campaign that we're all aware of in America and in the West, and at the same time, defend the liberal vision of Israel from right. um, you know people who are trying to subvert it. And and we're at a moment of real crisis here it's not it's not manufactured and and one of the main reasons that i thought that letter was important 
was that I'm afraid that American Jewish supporters of Israel will dismiss news of the crisis as more anti-Israel propaganda yeah. or more anti-BB propaganda. And mm-hmm. I thought that if they heard from me and Yossi and, and Daniel, all three of whom have kind of impeccable Zionist credentials, if we say this is a real emergency and you have to be aware of it, people will be more likely to understand that this is a real emergency because it is, because it is. And I think that if this government is is a passing episode, then the, the American Jewish relationship with Israel can survive. But if this is the new face of Israel, then um, the you know classic American liberal Jewish support for this country will be gone in a year because mm-hmm. no sane person is going to look at Itamar Ben-Gvir and say, yes, <laughs> this is a country that I really want to support and I'm going right. to you know, donate to Israeli causes and make sure my kids you know, visit there. Um, so it has to be, we have to open a space where you can be a patriotic Israeli and a patriotic Zionist and a, someone with great sympathy for Israel and say this is an awful government that is a malfunction of the democratic system in Israel and it has to go as quickly as possible for the good of Israel, for the good of the Jewish world. And that's what we wrote in that letter. And the, the, the responses have been pretty fiery, good fiery and bad fiery, but I think that we did open a space where, where that conversation could happen. And what I really wanted to do is make sure that people in, in, in America or North America who you know, feel deeply connected to Israel, but wanted to object to the objectively, you know, foul nature of some of the players in this government where they would not, they couldn't be labeled as anti-Zionists or BDS supporters. And we're kind of trying to give them a hechsher, like a kashrut certificate where they can say, I can say this because Mati and Yossi and Danny said it, and here's the article. And I know that has happened. Like, I know from the that that has happened in a few Jewish organizations. And I'm glad, I'm I'm sorry to be put in this situation. And I'm also sorry to put American Jewish supporters of Israel in this situation because it would be much simpler to say, you know, all of the information about Israel is libel. And uh, let's focus on that. But unfortunately, we have to focus on more than on more than one thing and fight a two front battle, which is really difficult. And um, but it, but it's necessary. And I just think it's without that space, a big part of the American Jewish community in the near future is going to be in a very different place in its relationship. It well. really no. I have to tell you, and I'm not just saying this. Like that article really changed my view of things because I was ignoring it. I was like, I can't deal with this. I don't want to hear about judicial reform. Like, this is too complicated. I'm, you know, and then, and I also wasn't sure how I felt about it. And then reading you guys, I mean, there's almost no one I respect more than three of you. And so that really made me think like, I need to have a, I need to have an opinion on this and I need to say something about this. And um, it was, it's so hard because I, like, I don't live there, you know? And so part of it is like, I, I feel like an imposter to come in and be like, this is what Israel should do. This is what Israelis should think. But on the other hand, you know, I'm out here in my little way, you know, fighting for the state in my tiny little way. But I just feel like it, it's, as a religious Jew, as an American Jew, it's complex, you know? And I don't know. I, I, I'm feeling, I, honestly, it's feeling very overwhelming. Like it's easier to deal with wars, <laughs> That like external yeah, wars it are really easier. We've talked about it this is. before in this podcast. You know how yeah. it's easier sometimes deal with wars, but you know I will say what what I do like about the the protest and is, is that it, it feels like very Zionist. Like it doesn't feel like it's the left, or it doesn't uh, feel like it's the people who hate Israel. Like you know, it, it feels like the the Zionist thing to do to oppose what's going on. 
Um, in 10 seconds, if you want to say yes, no, are we in a much better situation today than we were when you wrote that? No. <laughs> oh, really? I totally thought you were going to say yes. So this thing no, isn't I mean, dead yet. No, the Israeli political system is in, is in turmoil and mm-hmm. the political system here has gone from being a mechanism for solving the problems of citizens to a mechanism that creates problems. The political system generates problems that are ripping the society to pieces and uh, are making it impossible to function. And, and, you know, Israel has always basically been governed from the center. So you had governments that called themselves left or right, or, but it was basically the, the center. And here we have a first attempt um, to govern Israel from the extreme right. And we have characters running important government ministries who a year ago were unacceptable on the right. Yeah. And um, and it's very it's it's very worrisome. And people are, are right to be concerned. So, you know, there are things that I, there are aspects of the critique of Israel that I obviously think are are nonsense and I've written about it. But people who are concerned about the future of Israeli society and the future of Israeli democracy and the future of the liberal vision of Israel, which is what the American Jewish community has historically been part of um there's a you know it's not a sure thing and it um it's it's very much i think okay and a a completely kosher zionist position and in my opinion the correct zionist position to support the protesters who are out on the streets with israeli flags you know that's the most patriotic kind of protest and the people protesting are you know the most tax-paying army serving like square israelis for the most part i mean i go to, all Shout the out to here. my mom yeah yeah hi DL's mom like you know here in the protest in jerusalem which is where i go almost every uh, saturday night you know people come in and they say thank you to the cops and then they leave and they say thank you to the cops again and it's all very very orderly and uh Aww, that's nice but uh, there's a real sense that liberal israel is um is kind of on, on the brink. And, well, um, and from so the outside, it looks, it looks very um, like, uh, obviously it's depressing, but there's also something hopeful about it. It looks like there is a very strong contingency of people, dare I say the majority, who want Israel to be kind of liberal and open. And maybe they have different, you know, views on the peace process and maybe they have different views on, on you know, the role of religion in society, which... Uh, you know, is obviously very complicated, but it doesn't seem like the Ben Gvils of the world are winning. And and I know people who voted for him and they're not all terrible people. <laughs> it's, oh. it's very easy to dismiss and say like everybody who voted for him, they're irredeemable, right? But maybe next time they won't vote for him, I hope. Yeah. And also that vote is one I understand. And I think it's totally the wrong choice, but I, mm. I also know people who did and I, and it comes from, you know, a, a place of genuine fear or, you know, a sense that, you know, uh, desperate times call for desperate measures and all of these political instincts that are in my opinion, completely wrong and are leading us, you know, to a major political disaster, but it's not like those people are, are evil, but they have a very different vision of what the state needs to be. And I do think that there's a sane majority here, but the political system doesn't seem to be channeling that outcome because of the way it's it's set up. And there might be a parallel to that in the United States, where just the, the political system seems geared to producing outcomes that lead to dysfunction rather than an outcome that channels the basically sane nature of most of the population. So this is a government that's ruling with um, which, with less than 50% of the vote. Yeah. It's 48.4% of voters voted for this coalition. So it's not like the mass, you know, the masses of Israelis are necessarily on board with this, but, um, but the government does have a pretty solid majority in Knesset, even though, even if they don't have a solid majority of the popular vote and they have the right 
to govern and all that we can do on the other side is is protest and try to you know lead to it try to topple the government which is completely legit in a parliamentary system and hope for a better outcome next time there's a majority in this knesset um which is a kind of a, a Likud, Gantz, Lapid majority, which has 74 seats out of 120. So you could have a pretty sane majority in this Knesset, even without mm. another election. But there's a confluence of interests that is producing a government that is the most extreme government we've ever had, where we have very senior people who are completely irresponsible. Mm. And uh, it's a very scary moment, I think, for the society. And that's not a fiction uh, being uh, promoted by the media. That's the truth. <laughs> it's interesting. Well, Kyla is on her way, so she's going to figure I it out. I think that um, I I wonder if you um, also hear this narrative of because this is a narrative that is very familiar to me, which is this thriving Orthodox world that's growing and and expanding in Israel. Right? I mean, it, I, I spent a lot of time in Israel in the '90s as a teenager, and it was like there were like three kosher restaurants. Even in Jerusalem, right? Like yeah. you could get falafel and shawarma and one other, and there was Sbarro, right? And you come there today and it is out of, I mean, it's unbelievable what's going on in Israel. I mean, the Orthodox world is booming. It's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, there's a food scene, there's a theater, I mean, everything. And I think that's a story that a lot of secular Israelis and American Jews don't know what to do with. Because how does that fit in to this idea of like a liberal democracy or yeah, to the story the about Ben Gvir and Smotrich who are not really part, I mean, they're nationalists, they're religious nationalists, mm-hmm. they're not Haredi, like the thing that I'm talking about, right? Which is like all of my friends going to Israel for Pesach and Sukkot every single year and staying at the Waldorf Astoria and shopping and buying art and buying jewelry. And like, I mean, that's another story that's developing that's really quite interesting and and different than what we hear about. Right. And I think it, in much of it is great. And there's been this incredible flowering of Judaism and religious life. And you really see it here in Jerusalem. I just think it's important to remember that that's happening in the liberal country that, you know, has existed for the past 75 years. And it happens, it, you know, under the protection of the military that we have, which, you know, where everyone's kids serve. And it's, that's right. I think in terms of the world of ultra-Orthodox seminaries, that's largely underwritten by the liberal taxpayers of, of Israel. Right. So there's an ecosystem here that is working. And I think it's a bad idea for everyone to dismantle it. Like, I think it's a bad idea for the Haredim, for the ultra-Orthodox to dismantle the system that has created this kind of booming right. Jewish world. Right. And the idea, if they could only make the state more Haredi, <laughs> that, that's a mistake. It's happening in the context of a liberal country. And yeah. and, and everyone should be invested in the um, you know survival and the thriving of liberal Israel because it is at least potentially good for everyone. And if you look at the country as of a year ago, country's in really good shape despite all of the forces working against it so the idea that the country is a basket case that needs to be reprogrammed you know by the extreme right that seems unsupportable if you just look at the country which is actually you know in remarkably good shape because of the right. way that it's set up and because of the dna that we have so the, the forces acting to change it i don't think have the country's best interests at heart these are sectarian interests that are uh, being allowed to run amok um, at the expense of the majority of people here who are sane and would like a government that just kind of tries to, you know, keep the streets clean and yeah. um, function in a normal way and not not have this political circus, which has become really just, you know, absolutely unbearable and dysfunctional. That's right. I think it's a lot of people that I know who are ultra-Orthodox um, are pretty surprised when I explain to them that they're actually socialists. 
They don't understand mm-hmm. that. They don't really have the language to understanding that they're, they have more in common with Meirav Michaeli's vision of like what, how the government should function in Israel versus like they think they're far right, but they're actually socialists who are just, you know, feel, I don't know. It's like they want a social theocracy somehow. I'm not sure what they want, but they they don't realize like they need, they need the money from the government. They don't want a a right-wing government that's going to be, you know, austerity and like, you know, cut funding. That's ridiculous. Nobody wants trade-offs, right? Like everybody (laughs) wants the whole thing. Yeah, the terms don't map onto American politics. So people think that they're right wing, yeah. but it ends up being right wing has nothing to do with like, not having government subsidies. So right. you know, people want they want to be right wing, but they also want massive government subsidies for educational institutions and for people who choose not to work. Which to a right wing, you know, to a right wing politician in America it makes absolutely no sense. But the joke here is that all the parties want socialism for themselves and libertarianism for everyone else. Right. <laughs> so, right. You know, everyone wants, a, you know, generous government benefits for them and everyone else to have a free market economy. So you know what the solution is? Kibbutzim. Everybody gets a kibbutz. Would right, you, uh, this is, this is a tough question, but in one word answer, like, would you draft all Haredi kids to the army if you could? I think everyone needs to do some kind of national service. Yeah. It doesn't have to I, be. It doesn't have to be military service. And I think three that... Three out of the, three. It's done. If the, the Khalidim were, were smart, they would come up with an option themselves. Yeah, plan, they would right. say, listen, we can't serve in the military for whatever reason, but we will do three years of X or Y. And that would go a long way to ameliorating a lot of the hostility um, that people feel because it is you know, completely unfair that we have a mandatory draft yeah. that applies to me and my children and not to my neighbors and their children. That right. just doesn't make any sense. So um, I think that it should be done proactively. If there was kind of a constructive attitude, you, you would, it would be coming from the Haredim. They would say, we see ourselves as the torchbearers of Judaism. And thus, we will you know, contribute in this way to the you know, state that has been so great to us. That's and it doesn't right. have to be the way that you want. It will be the way that we want, but it will be equal in impact to your military service. And I think that would be good. But uh, constructive thinking seems to be in short supply. yes, no question for you. What? Would the Haredim do anything, um, sacrifice anything from for people outside of their community? Like for the, the good of the state? I mean, that's a really hard question to answer. I think I, know, that's I, why I said say, yes, no. <laughs> I want to say yes. I mean, I think okay. in a situation of war, in life and death, in war, mm-hmm. I think they would. Um, but I think that there is a big, you know, there, look, Haredim are tribal. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, that's yeah. really, it, the same way we talk about the Middle East and the Arabs, I mean, the, the Haredim are very similar and very, very, very tribal. I mean, people are always shocked when I explain the politics within the Hasidic world that I'm a part of, there's a tremendous politics between you mean, us. And you mean you're not all marry. the same? No, and we don't marry within each other. Like, there are groups that don't marry each other, right? <laughs> like, I mean, it's it's really, like, it's very, very tribal, and you cannot understand how the community works without understanding that one piece of information. Yeah. And so, the more yeah, you I zoom think in, they the... consider you part of the tribe. They will sacrifice everything for you. The question is that, you know, what, how can we get everyone to feel like we're part of one tribe? And that's the—that's what I worry about. That's what I what I spend my time thinking about. On that note, let's uh, let's let Mati go. Uh, Mati, where where can people find you? I know I know you're on Twitter, but you said you're not much of a, a social media guy. 
yeah, I kind of do the minimum. I do some, <laughs> you know, I sometimes remember that I'm supposed to tweet, so I do. And um, <laughs> uh, same thing with Facebook. So I am, I am there. But um, you should have a Substack. Like you should do a newsletter. I'm living in medieval times, man. I'm in the '90s. Yeah, um, I have great. a hotmail. I have a hotmail address. <laughs> you do have a hotmail. I didn't want to mention that, but I now that you do, it's it, it was very. I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for this whole. I'm waiting for this whole computer thing to pass. I think <laughs> it's a fad. Yeah, it's a it's a fad. Yeah. Um, okay. One last thank question. You so wait, much. wait. One last question. One last question. <laughs> I was gonna say Sorry. we hope we're gonna have you again no, too. I know. I want. I know. Last I have question. question. What's your favorite restaurant in Jerusalem? Do you have one? What's your go-to? I, um, I am a fan of, of Indian food, and oh. now, and now, after many years where we did not have an Indian restaurant in Jerusalem, we have two, and oh. one of them is called one of them is called Jira, J E E R A, and it's downtown. And at the moment, it is my favorite restaurant in Jerusalem. And if you come wow. to Jerusalem, you should definitely check it out. Mm. Wow, that I sounds awesome! I was listening awesome. to a radio show about Shukramle, and apparently, they have like a bunch of Indian Jews that live in Ramle and they have a few restaurants that are supposed to be amazing. There is an Indian scene in Ramle, yeah. There are Jews who came from, from India. Many of them came from Kuching and they mm-hmm. have their own cuisine and it's, um, and it's great. I didn't oh, know Ramle was great. actually a place. I thought it was just like a punchline. An airport? But no, no, I thought it was like airport. a punchline of a joke. <laughs> Apparently the shuk is, uh, is very nice, according oh, to uh, the radio show I listen to. <laughs> well, I hope I'll see you. I'm going to be at Hartman in a couple weeks, so I hope that I'll see you there. Are you going to be around? I'm, I'm around Jerusalem. He's I, like, I'm, not, I'm busy I, that day. He's like, not, you're coming. I'm not affiliated with Hartman, I, although I did meet you there because uh, they asked me to, to speak. Oh, I thought I'm, you I'm, were. I'm, oh, you're not? No, I'm not affiliated with any institution, which I'm. Uh, oh, which I is the way that. that I... Wait, you're affiliated with us now. This is a blood Wait, time. so we could have been criticizing Hartman this whole time and I held back because I thought you... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that. that. As long as I can maintain independence from any institution, the, the better in terms of what I can write and can't write. And you're living your best life. Yeah. I just um, want to like... I want the Mati Friedman lifestyle. <laughs> Reading, writing, and just disconnecting from social media and, and chatter. I, my life is literally the opposite of that. I deal with people's opinions all day long and don't, you know, and read a book in like a month. Although you have <laughs> so a lot of books. You have a lot of books behind you, I'm noticing. So I guess that's there's true, a that's true. And I, I do read five at a time, so that helps. It's all props. Um, it's all props. <laughs> all right, Mati. Well, hopefully we'll we'll be able to have you back one day. Thank you so it much for talking to you guys. Thank you very Thank much for you. having me.